Open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 8. We've been in a series going through uh, the book of Acts. Right now, we are kind of making our way through this particular spot, chapter 8. And uh, before we jump in, um, what we've been noticing is that really the book of Acts is sort of a biography of sorts. It's a story of, or the narrative of, how this uh, early gathering of Christians or followers of Jesus grew to become this massive movement that literally was this unstoppable momentum throughout the early world, um, you know, 2,000 years ago, all the way throughout really the, the entire world as we know it today. So you look at Christianity today as being sort of this global movement in every country on the planet. Obviously, in some places, it's flourishing more than others. In other places, it's more acceptable than others. Um, but everywhere you go, there are, are people that would somehow recognize Jesus as, as their king, as their Lord. Um, it all began here. This is the story of how this gathering, small gathering of followers of Jesus became this worldwide global movement. But I think at, you know, there's all sorts of questions you can ask like with any movement. You can ask, well, how did the movement become so popularized? Or how did, you know, like, for example, Apple products become so awesome and so much better than Windows products? And, um, and everybody knows that, of course. But um, how did that happen? Um, and, you know, we, we could say, well, it's, it's, it's a marvel of marketing. You know, like, like marketers are really good and it's kind of a cult-like Following so that people are that are into Apple products are like really into Apple products. They they they're very uh, devoted and loyal to their uh, products. But I mean, you can look at a lot of different things like this and kind of wonder and ask these kind of uh, these questions. How did this thing get to be what it was? And Christianity is is very similar as well. How did Christianity like gain this momentum to where it was this unstoppable force, even in the face of extreme pushback. Um, so, so again, when you think about it this way, on the one hand, Christianity was, was, was received by all sorts of peasants and poor people and outcasts and uh, lost and lonely and people that were socially uh, pushed off into the margins, um, while at the same time, the, the power brokers, right, the elites, those that had uh, ability and strength and money and recognition and authority, uh, they were, for the most part, resisting this, this thing. So how did this peasant movement become this in, uh, incredible, unstoppable movement that, that it is still today, right? Um, I think one of the questions, I mean, we, we can look at, I mean, we can give a generic answer and say, well, well it's easy, the Holy Spirit. And, and yes, that's an accurate answer. Um, and yes, the Holy Spirit was really this motivating, moving, powerhouse force within this this community of people that was animating this, this work. But another way to kind of think about this is that God was actually partnering or using people in a way that they were in partnership with God. So the, in other words, the way I would answer this is that one key to really its expansive growth, the way I have written out up here, is really radical obedience. That the people, the people that were part of this community were going around saying yes to God as opposed to uh, saying no to God. And, and as a result of this community of people saying yes to God, God saying go here, God saying go do this, God saying talk to this person, and the early followers of Jesus, uh, rather than negotiating, rather than fighting, rather than resisting, rather than um, you know, engaging in very long dialogues, argument with God, they just said yes, God. And as a result of that, we, we see this movement go forth with this unstoppable power that still is going on today. 
Because if you had a community of people that you flip this around, uh, people that said, no God, or why God, or constantly negotiating with God, you wouldn't have seen this explosive growth. So obedience, radical obedience, I would say, is really kind of the center point. It's the main key, uh, which, which really allowed Christianity to kind of do what Christianity had done in the first century. So this story that I'm going to read is in Acts chapter 8. We'll pick it up around verse 26. This is a great story. It kind of speaks for itself. But I want you to listen to it. I want you to enter into the narrative and see within the story that there's basically two characters. One is uh, this guy by the name of Philip. We looked at him a couple weeks ago. He kind of re-enters back in the story. And we hear a little bit about Philip. And uh, Philip literally abruptly ends kind of within the storyline. We don't really see much or hear much about Philip anymore until a little bit later in the book of Acts. He's not a main character in the book. Um, but he is a main character in this little uh, vignette or story that we're going to read. And then there's another guy that's nameless. We have no idea who he is. We're just simply told he is an Ethiopian eunuch. More on that in just a moment, what that is and what that profile was and all that. But uh, with that, what I want you to notice when we read the story is just listen to how these, these two characters, um, really in their own right, were just saying yes to God. Um, they, there were challenges. We'll kind of uncover and think about what some of those are. Um, but both of them were basically in this place of just saying, yes, radical obedience, I think, is what and how I would define this. So just listen to the narrative and pay attention, think about it, and then uh, I'll pray, and then we'll just jump right in and try to understand a little bit what, about what's happening here. Verse 28, uh, sorry, verse 26, it says this, Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza, this is a desert place. That's a really important phrase. We'll come back to that in a moment. Desert place. Uh, no, thank you. Verse 27 says, But he arose and he went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch of the court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Spirit then said to Philip, Go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And he asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And then he said, how can I? Unless someone guides me. And then he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, as the spirit, or as the passage of the scripture was being read, uh, it, was, it said this. Like a sheep that was led to the slaughter, like a lamb that was before its shearer is silent, so he opened out his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Verse 34, then it says, And then the eunuch then said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet speak? About himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, beginning in this scripture, he told them all the good news that was about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some body of water. And then the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Verse 39 says, and when he came out of the water, just listen, this is crazy. All right? I have no idea what's going on here other than just read it for what it is. It's, it's crazy stuff. And they came out of the water, and the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more. <laughs> Wormhole, I guess. That's my guess. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed 
through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let me pray. We'll jump in. God, we ask you right now that as we begin to look at and peel back some of the layers and think about and consider what's happening here, we pray that you would open our hearts, our minds, our thoughts uh, to what radical obedience looks like. And God, then personalize it so that we can then ask ourselves, are, are we living in ways that are radically obedient to you? And show us how that we can do that rightly. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we jump any further talking about the idea of disobedience, I think we have to kind of, first of all, acknowledge a dysfunctional relationship that we have with obedience. So here's a couple things to consider. Because when I think about this, when, we, when I throw out the word obedient, I don't know what emotions or feelings or thoughts or cognitive reactions you have. But if I were to just say, obey, like, what do you think? What do you feel? Does your body seize up? Do you begin to break out in a sweat? Do you get tense? Do you have hives? What do you feel when I say obey? All right? It depends upon what your background or your relationship is to this word. So these are some things we've got to just really recognize. One, obedience, I think, is really not a positive word. Um, and the fact is that when we think about it, um, we have sort of this dysfunctional relationship with it. For many, it sounds cold or harsh or impersonal legalistic, right? You can always remember uh, that legalistic person that you knew when you were on 16 or 17 who was like uh, obstinately obeying God. You're like, well, why are you doing all these things? Because I must obey God, you know, no matter what. And you're like, oh man, Christianity stinks. But again, in the impression that you get is that it's about rule following. It's about being radically obedient. And so somehow there's a little bit of a misfire. It creates this emotion, this angst, in your heart. So when you think about obedience, you think about this radical nature, this radical, hard-headed, legalistic type of approach. Uh, you can think of obedience in terms of a manipulative fashion or oppressive. If you knew somebody that was constantly, especially a spiritual leader, for example, that was constantly throwing down the manipulative uh, leadership or obedience card. Obey me, I'm your leader. Or obey me, I'm your dad. Or obey me, I'm your mother. Or obey me, I'm your you know, leadership figurehead. So everything you do must be in alignment with me. And it comes across as manipulative or controlling or oppressive or like tyranny, 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 tomato, tomato. You get the idea. But the point of the matter is we have sort of this weird relationship with the concept of, of obedience. Uh, there's a couple other things that play into this uh, dysfunctional relationship. One as well, it also, it challenges really this inherent drive that's, that's part of our culture um, to be autonomous, to be individualistic. That, that's what makes America, America, right? We are a community of individuals. We think individualistically. We act with autonomy. We do what we want to do when we want to do it. We don't want accountability. If we have to have accountability, we want very limited or measured amounts of accountability. But for the most part, we truly want to live in ways that are completely autonomous, where, where we have accountability to no one, but everybody's accountable to us. Everybody answers to me, but I answer to nobody. That, that mentality. Another thing is that Americans really don't like the idea of somebody telling us what to do. Again, probably because of, of the second thing. is We as Americans, it's just part of who we are. It's like part of red, white, and blue and apple pie. Like, like we don't want, as a community of people, telling us, do this. We're like, no, I will not do that. Don't tread on me. That mentality is like part of our culture. But here's the reality. We will, by definition, we will, by action, obey 
somebody or something. So for those of us that might be tricked into assuming or thinking that I obey nobody except myself. I answer nobody except my own instincts or my own intuition or my own desires. The fact is, is that all of us are subject to obey something. Okay, so think about this. Because as children of, of Adam, all right, so Adam and Eve being sort of this, 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 this head of what we call humanity, the way the Bible describes it, is that from Adam and Eve is this race of people, you know, we call them you and I, like human beings. Every human being, to some degree, is in this type of relationship where the Bible would describe we are servants and slaves to something. So here's some examples of things that you and I are slaves to. I mean, there's obvious things that you can look at and say, well, Duh, that guy's a slave, or that girl's a slave to meth. This is obvious. Or slave to alcohol, or slave to anger, or slave to, you know, taking selfies because they just care about themselves above and beyond everything. We've all seen those people, right? We, we all can identify them. Like, they are constantly looking at themselves in the mirror and taking photos of themselves and constantly posting. Like, they are narcissistic. They are a slave to the, this notion of beauty that they somehow exude. But here's some other lesser-known ways in which, which you and I are, are slaves to. For example, um, we are slaves or servants to our, our passions. Like passions, lusts, like the Bible describes. Like we have these, these values or these desires. And, and we, when we live according to those things, so think about it this way. Our relationship oftentimes with these desires and lusts and passions are when we have these impulses, if you're a slave to that, then you are powerless to do anything other than that. So let me give you an example the thought of downloading porn comes into your head. Your reaction is, download porn. That, that's, what, that's what I'm being commanded, so I'm being told to do. I will do what the impulse is telling me, leading me, guiding, coaching me to do. I, and therefore, you are a slave to that, 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 that desire, that, that lust, that, that impulse. A couple other examples you can think about. Again, that's kind of an extreme one. Um, opinions of others. So, so if you are somebody that, that there's somebody in your life that you look up to, it could be a father, it could be a spouse, it could be, you know, a parent, um, a, a, you know, somebody that you know, a pastor even sometimes, where you really truly want their opinion to be uh, highly elevated uh, for you, over you. Now, if for some reason you felt as if you're falling out of disfavor, you will do everything you can in your energy and in your power to somehow be brought back into favor with them. You work extra hard. If they ask you to do something, hey, go wash my car. You're like, okay, yes, yes. Uh, I need some food. Want me to go buy you some food? Like, oh, well, that's cool, sure. Uh, man, I really want a cup of coffee. I'll go buy you a cup of coffee. Like, you will do anything for them, even without even being asked, because you are a, by definition, slave to their approval. You guys, you guys following so far? Is this making sense? I'll, I'll give you one more, because this is fun. This is fun. Um, here's two more, actually. Emotions. Emotions. So we actually have a word for this. We, we call a person that is a slave to their emotions, we, we, we call them emotional, right? Emotional. They are emotional, right? They are a basket case is what we say. They are emotional. That, that is the, that's the word that we use to describe someone, that whenever they feel like they want to cry, they just cry. Like, oh, they're so emotional. Or they're angry. They're just emotional. They are controlled by, manipulated by, they're, they're always saying yes to whatever the emotion is that they're currently feeling. Here's one more. Fear. Fear, I guess, would be sort of an emotion, but it's a very powerful emotion. Let's kind of put it in some little category. So fear, think of it this way. Fear is this, this strong emotion that has a tendency to paralyze you. 
I'll give you a personal example. How about that? So it's not just all you on the chopping block. It's me. Um, several years ago, when, when uh, one, of my, one of my children was really young, um, it was on a Sunday morning, and I was getting ready for church, and, and something happened. I won't go into the background of it. Um, but what had happened was uh, the situation that, I, that was presented to me completely, I, it was overtaken with fear. Like so much fear, I was overtaken with. I, I literally fell down. I just crashed. My knees buckled. I was on the ground. And, you know, my wife was just like, are you, are you okay? Is everything all right? What's going on? And I was able to kind of recover and get back over. But I still felt this, uh, this surge of adrenaline. It was kind of still pumping through my body. I was kind of trying to figure out what was going on. Um, years later, a whole other circumstance and situation. Some of you guys know, but about two years ago, I um, had uh, some sort of a lump on my throat. And they were trying to figure out what was all, that was all about. Was it cancer or whatnot? And during that season of having to wait to, uh, from the time that I had the surgery to the time that they were getting back to me with regard to the biopsy, there was all this fear that I was constantly having to push back and fight and resist and say no to, as opposed to saying, yes, fear, <laughs> yes, impulse, yes, emotion, control me. Whatever you say, I will do, fear. Whatever you say, emotion, I will follow. Do you see where I'm going with this? We are, by definition, slaves to something. Something has authority. Something has influence over us. Something has this ability to exercise its weightiness over us. And when it does, um, we have this tendency to just buckle and say, yes, whatever. So here's my point that that I really want to go back to. The notion of obedience, no matter what your relationship is with it, Every one of us are in some form of an obedient relationship to something or somebody or some emotion or some lust or some desire or some craving or some impulse. Make sense? Problem is, is that some of the things that we are subjecting ourselves to and submitting to and saying yes to are things that actually lead to our destruction and brokenness and ruin. Okay? Okay? Does that make sense? For a person that is born again by Jesus, made new, we are basically told that those relationships that we had with these former lusts and cravings and longings and desires and fears and need to approve other, be approved by other people has, has been broken. Jesus has broken those things because we have the approval of God. God looks at us favorably and says, well done, good and faithful servant. God looks at us and says, don't be afraid. There's peace God looks at us and says, uh, don't let your emotions and longings and cravings control you. That's not what defines you. What defines you is you bear my name. That's what defines you. I have given you a new name. And so what a, a Christian really is, a Christian is not perfect, of course, but a Christian is one that basically sees obey, the relationship to obeying these alternative elements and emotions as being turned upside down. So now we obey God. And then we say no to these other things. So we say no to fear. So when fear has his power over us and says, you must buckle underneath the weight of my powerfulness, we say, no, 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 you are not more powerful than God. God is greater than my fears. God is greater than these emotions. When we find ourselves overtaken, overwhelmed by certain lusts or desires or impulses, we have, by God's power, this ability through the Holy Spirit to say, no, that's not what defines me. I won't let that taint me or stain me or ruin me, I will follow Jesus. And that's where Paul, later in the New Testament, would say something like this. Um, we, we, we walk in the Spirit, 
not in the desires of the flesh. That's all that simply means. So going back to all of this that I'm saying is radical obedience should not be a word that should frighten you. It is what you are already doing. Every one of us are involved in some form of a relationship with radical obedience. The problem is some of us are radically obedient to the wrong things. And that relationship of being radically obedient to the wrong thing is actually what is leading to your constant undoing and brokenness and ruin. And Jesus comes to to reorient the values of our heart to be towards him. Okay, so so that's my premise. That's where I'm going. So with that, let's, let's take a look at the two characters. And then I'm done. How about that? We're done. So let's take a look at the two characters here. First of all, let's take a look at this guy by the name of Philip. Philip, let's read a little bit about the story about Philip. There's really two things I see with regard to Philip's obedience, radical obedience, that kind of stand out to me. One, we'll just take a look at it. There's kind of two steps here. On the one hand, we see the first step, which the angel comes to him in about verse 26. And then the angel of the Lord says, so this kind of is an interesting thing. Um, If you've ever kind of asked yourself, how does God speak to me? This is actually a really, really rich chapter. I would completely encourage you do some more Bible study. Think about this chapter because there's several different ways in which God speaks in this uh, passage. Um, first of all, we see that God speaks to an angel. So you might say, well, I've never had an angel speak to me. Um, um, the word angel can also mean messenger. So again, I think we immediately go to like a six foot eight Danish supermodel. Um, but, but really in the Bible, um, um, angels are not that. They are these, these terrifying winged creatures that when you look at, you, you melt in terror in their presence. And so, again, what's being communicated or spoken of or described here is, is a little bit unclear, but we're just simply told a messenger or an angel. It could be somebody that was no-named, who's a Christian, a human being, flesh and bone, uh, said something to Philip here, or it could have actually been some sort of winged cherubim or seraphim creature that came to him. But whatever the case is, this angel speaks to him, and he says, rise and go south on the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And then verse 27, we're just basically told his, his reaction. And then he rose and went. So again, first of all, we just see, we don't see him negotiating. We don't see him arguing. We don't see him pushing back. We don't see him somehow trying to uh, uh, rig the system. Uh, now, th- this is a really fascinating passage. Here's, here's why. So what it, what it kind of, the backstory to this story was Philip was part of this church in Jerusalem. And then he ends up going down because there's all this, chaos happening within the Jerusalem church. Their homes are being, you know, confiscated and their stuff is being confiscated and their lives are being turned upside down. And as a result of this, you know, persecution, Christians were fleeing everywhere. So in this case, Philip, where, again, the way Luke tells the story, um, he kind of goes off in these, like, little vignettes, little stories about, you know, here's what happened with Philip, here's what happened with the guy Paul, and here's what happened with these other guys. But in this case, he just focuses a little bit on this guy Philip. And he says, Philip goes down to this region of Samaria. Now, we looked at this last week, so I won't go into it more, but the idea that's kind of being conveyed here is that God is literally breaking down racial barriers. That's what's happening, is that the Samaritan people were this, were this hated group of people um, that Jewish people didn't like, they despised them. But what we see is, is the work of the gospel now beginning to go into these racially tense regions, and they are responding overwhelmingly positive to the message. Uh, in other words, the churches were growing, people were getting saved, lives were being transformed. All the religious Christian talk that you want to describe described what was going on here. All right? uh, revival, if you want to say it that way. If you're familiar with that phrase, revival was breaking out in Samaria. In other words, this was insane what was happening here. God was just doing incredible things. But all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord comes to the guy that's the main 
preacher in the midst of this revival. He says, I want you to leave it all. And by the way, here's where I want you to go. The desert. <laughs> now, if you know anything about the desert, like back in that area, the closest thing, I've said this before, if you just drive out on 41 or the 48, and in the middle between Paso Robles and Fresno and Bakersfield, that massive stretch of just plain land, that's, that's, that's desert. That's exactly what it looks like uh, geographically there, there in Israel. It's, it's absolutely nothing. It's totally barren, all right? And so God is literally telling Philip, leave this oasis, this radical revival, this place of incredible blessing, and go into the place of total drought and desertness. In other words, put it in the context, what God is requesting of Philip makes absolutely no sense. It's ridiculous, in other words, according to human standards. It just makes absolutely no sense. But this was God's plan. Sometimes God works in ways, God requests of us things that are Totally nonsensical. They don't make any sense. It doesn't seem to be the right path because it doesn't line up with your five-year game plan. It doesn't line up with what your life coach told you what you should do. It doesn't make sense in any way, shape, or form according to your own cognitive reasoning. It just does not make sense. But that may be exactly what God has in store. You guys following so far? You guys doing all right? But this is the way God oftentimes works. I'll give you an example of this. Um, years ago, when my f- wife and I first were, uh, got married, we were living down in Orange County. Um, uh, we, I grew up down there. We both grew up down there. We had jobs down there. We worked at the same place. Uh, we were you know, about a year and a half married. So we would literally drive to work together. We would have lunch with each other. We would drive home. People would ask us, don't you get tired of each other? We're like, no, we love this. This is awesome. And the place that we were living was like right about a mile and a half from the beach. In fact, I think it was like a mile exactly to the beach. It's really good surf spots. I grew up surfing Huntington Beach. So I was like right in between Newport Beach and Huntington Beach. So I can choose either place. And it's, it's awesome. I'm like, this is, this is paradise for me. It's amazing to be able to be living here. I'm hanging out with my wife all the time. We live in this really cool little apartment. And uh, I'm really close to the beach. Everything is awesome in, in our lives right now. And yet... Right around that time, we, we had this deep urge in our heart that, and I'm not going to go through it again, but some of you guys have heard it before, but just the fact is, is that we had this urge, like God was, we sensed God saying, move from Orange County, move from your life, that makes total sense, and not only that money, um, I mean, not like we were making a lot of money, but you know, you know, for us, it was like, man, we're, this is awesome, we're newly married, we own like five pieces of furniture, it, it, was, it was amazing, like, like life was really, really simple and, and good, so we're like, it doesn't make sense for us to leave all of this, and our family was down there, to go to San Luis Obispo. And some of you might be like, well, gosh, that's, that sounds like suffering. God's calling you to San Luis Obispo. Like, look, back in the day, I mean, like 20 years ago, 25 years ago, San Luis was cool, but it wasn't like as cool as it is today. I mean, like Oprah hadn't discovered it yet. And I mean, I mean, for us, we didn't know anything about San Luis. All we knew was that San Luis had a pink hotel and a, and a college. That was the only things that we knew. So for us, we didn't know it was like this cool, hip place. Um, we, we, just, we just sensed like God was saying, move to San Luis Obispo. And, and so for us, we were kind of wrestling with this reality. Like, okay, what do we do? We feel like God's telling us to go. Um, go, go plant a church. Go establish a work. And, and that's what we did. That's, that's, that. So we took this first step. Now, now, again, mind you, like when we moved up here, we didn't have jobs. Uh, we, we didn't have a, a place to live. So we were negotiating with, you know, landlords. We're like, you know, look, we, we need a house a uh, place to stay, and they're like, okay, uh, where do you work? They're like, oh, we don't have jobs yet or, or any source of income. They're like, cool, house is yours. 
We're like, wait, did you just hear that we said we don't have any source of income or, or jobs? Like, yeah, that's, that's cool. Here's, here's the key. We're like, okay, I guess God's opening doors. Like, God, we're at step one, move to slow. Step two, I'll take care of everything else. So, so here's the deal. This is how God works. The, the next thing that we see is step two is that the Spirit of the Lord, now in this case, first of all, it was a messenger, angelic being, whatever, uh, spoke to Philip. Philip goes, it's his direct response, verse 27, and he went and he rose, or he rose and he went, sorry, in verse order. And then step two, it says, the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him. I love this. Because if God would have been like, hey, Philip, um, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go find the chariot and, you know, step one, go find the chariot. Philip wouldn't have had any clue what that was all about. But in other words, in order to get to step two, Philip had to first go by way of step one. And oftentimes we as, as, you know, followers of Jesus, we're like, God, I want step five. I want to know what the 10-year plan is. I want to know what I'm going to be doing five years from now. I want to know all these answers right now. God's just saying, step one is what I want you to do. Be obedient. Be faithful to me right here, right now. Whatever that what year, right here, what right now is. Be faithful to that. You're like, but it doesn't make any sense. Probably. Probably right. It doesn't make any sense. But, again... If God is God, and if we are finite creatures, which means that we don't see things rightly all the time, which means there's a lot of information that may not be actually available to us yet, it should always stand to reason that God's ways will always be higher than our ways. It should always stand to reason that when God asks us to do something, most of the time, at least in the initial stages, it won't appear to make much sense. And yet this is how we often have work. We work in these calculated ways, measured ways in which we're like, as long as all of this stuff makes sense first, then I will agree to, to do it. And, and again, I, I just go back to this, this story with Philip, and none of it made sense to him, but he did it. He did it. So we see this radical obedience, which is what led to this incredible next thing that we see, which introduces us to the next guy, which is this uh, Ethiopian eunuch. So let's talk a little bit about him. So who is this guy? Take a little bit of his profile. One, we're just simply told that he's an Ethiopian, uh, which, uh, you know, if you look on a map, um, Google map this, you realize that Ethiopia is probably about 2,500 miles south of, of Jerusalem, like directly south of, of Jerusalem. That's really far. Um, they didn't have planes back then, they didn't have cars, no high-speed uh, trains. Um, they had camels, all right? Camels, actually, I, I don't know much about camels. I've, I've never actually ridden on one, but I assume they're actually a lot slower than horses. Um, but, and, and I would imagine this guy's on a train or of, of camels with chariots and whatnot being pulled, and he's got a caravan. He's got people that are with him. So we know that he's Ethiopian. Secondly, we know that he's, he's a eunuch, which, which back in that culture, a eunuch would have been somebody that basically would be uh, castrated, which means that they would, they would lose and they would be emasculated. And the idea behind that was that you are now going to work for a high-ranking female official, which is exactly what he was. he was. He was the court official in charge of all the treasury. But one other thing that's kind of unique and I think is interesting about his choice. So he chose to become a eunuch. The idea behind this was, you know, your, your, your male organ, obviously, was your means. You got to think somehow 2,000 years ago, all right? We tend to think of, you know, uh, those organs as being nothing more than pleasure things. But the reality is back 2,000 years ago, it, it, was your, it was your pathway to your future. 
In other words, you had kids because kids were your means of keeping your name going. Kids were your means of basically some, somebody to pass on your inheritance to, your wealth, your riches, your land, your territory, your name. You pass it on to so that when you're dead and gone, your name, your wealth, your privilege, your prestige is still going on for generations after generations. That was extremely important back in that day. And this guy was basically saying, I'm willing to lose all of that for my career. Um, and some of us might be like, that's shocking. How can somebody actually sacrifice their family for the career? And it happens all the time. Like, even still in our day. Like, obviously, people don't emasculate themselves for that. They just simply don't show up at home. They don't throw the football with their sons. They don't spend time with their kids. They don't hang out with their children. They don't read Bible stories to them. They are simply inundated with work and success and everything else that goes along with that. And they are literally sacrificing their future their kids to their career same, same thing this guy did um he just wore it a little bit more obvious I, though i don't know how obvious it would be but you get the idea so <laughs> some you two of you just got that all right um he was a court official and we're told that he was in charge of the treasury so so this meant that this guy was an extremely high ranking official that worked directly under this uh queen by the name of, of candace which probably wouldn't have been her name but a title um, this guy, think, uh, think about him in terms of being like a Ben Bernanke, uh, a chairman of the Federal Reserve. This was a guy that was like an Alan Greenspan. He had extreme power, and it was all there at his, his fingertips. But, and this kind of plays into the story, which is kind of shocking, because he had this intense spiritual hunger as well, which plays into the whole story as well. That this, why is this guy in Jerusalem? Um, why is this Ethiopian, high-ranking official, 2,500 miles away from his career, taking time off. Now, mind you, this probably would have taken a year, a year-long travel. I mean, 2,500 miles is pretty much the extent from uh, California all the way to the East Coast. That's a really far distance, and this guy would have done this by way of camelback. Why is he taking long time, long period off of his career? Now, we already know his career is extremely important to them. Because he recognizes, even though he has literally everything, he's still empty. He still recognizes he needs something. So he's, he's in Jerusalem. He's going to the temple, and he's praying. So he journeys really far to try to figure out and understand who this Yahweh is, who God is, and what God's all about. And then he goes in. And this is, this is where it gets really shocking. Even though this is not mentioned in the text, um, this would probably be implied because of the fact that he is a, uh, a eunuch. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1, basically has these rules that were written um, as to who was included into the worship and who was excluded. And this guy, because he was a eunuch, he would have been excluded. So he would have traveled 2,500 miles, uh, driven by this intense spiritual craving, only to discover um, he's not welcome. Imagine, imagine you put yourself in that place uh, have you ever been in a position or been in a place where you deeply wanted to be accepted? You deeply wanted to be the one that was called upon and recognized and affirmed and, rec- and brought in, uh, given a place, and yet you, you, it's the very opposite. You are excluded. You're not welcomed. You are singled out. You are alienated. You are marginalized. You are, you're, not, you're not the right stuff. That's what this, that, was, that was this guy. So here's the story. So, he's on his way back, still spiritually hungry, still has a job, still has a career, still on his way back to keep 
going on with life, still has this deep spiritual hunger, and he's reading scripture. And this is where we pick up the story. And he's not just reading any scripture, but the scripture that, that he's reading is out of Isaiah chapter 53, um, which is sort of this really long passage of scripture, which, which because he's got a really long drive ahead of him, all right, 2,500 miles, I have no idea how long that would take, but I would imagine it's a very, very lengthy time. It would have been a very dangerous travel as well. There's all sorts of bandits. I mean, think of the road systems. Um, back then, obviously, they didn't have the types of security and measures and whatnot that, that we have today. And on top of that, this guy has a scroll, which, which meant, again, just points to the fact that this guy was extremely wealthy because, you know, we take for granted we have this, this you know, this nice little book, our, our Bible, you know, leather bound, it's awesome. Um, some of us, you know, for me, I, I know I have, you know, a dozen of them. Um, I obviously don't read them all, but they, but they look really great on a, on a bookshelf. Um, but for a guy back in that day to have a scroll like, like, for one, not many people had scrolls because they couldn't mass produce them. So the, the cost to create a scroll was extremely expensive. And if you owned a scroll, it meant that you had a lot of money. So here's this guy going back reading. The, the passage that he's reading is part of this whole passage, series of passages called the servant portion. And so the, the guy probably would have read another passage in Isaiah chapter 56 that said something like this. Just listen. Because the prophet, Isaiah, is, is envisioning a time in Israel's future that one day... God will make right. God will bring healing. Uh, the word for that is justice. God will bring justice where there is injustice. God will bring healing where there is a deep brokenness. God will restore areas that have been lost and decimated. God will bring in people that have been marginalized and, and omitted and, and or rejected for whatever reason. God will do it. God will do it through the means of a servant. And when this happens... Um, it, it, it will be this incredible uh, pouring out of God's spirit. So here's a passage that he perhaps would have been familiar with. It says this in Isaiah chapter 56. He says, do not let the foreigners, as Isaiah is envisioning this, don't let the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord say, the Lord will never let me part, be, a part, uh, be a part of his people. And then he says, don't let the eunuchs say, I'm sure he would have read that and been like, don't let the eunuchs say, that's me. Like, I'm, I'm one that has given up everything for my career and then he says, don't let the eunuch say, I am a dried up tree with no children and no future. I would imagine he would have read that and been like, whoa, that's, that's me. I have no future. I've given up. I've sacrificed my future for my career. And right here, he's reading this passage. He says, don't let the eunuch say your life is over. And he ties it back, no doubt, to this passage where he says, here, here the servant, whoever the servant is, this servant, just listen to it again, and just listen carefully to how he describes this. This servant, he says, he is like a sheep that is led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before shear is silent. He opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice is denied him. So whoever this servant is, and this is what he's trying to wrestle with and wonder, like, how in the world did this happen? Who is this person? Is this the prophet who's writing this about himself? Is this the prophet writing this about somebody else? Who is this person? He's got all these questions that are looming in his mind, but one of the things he notices is that whoever the servant is, he, he is denied justice, he's denied access, he's denied a future, and he was like a lamb that was standing before its shearers, silent, had nothing to offer, nothing to say. He doesn't open his mouth. In other words, he is crushed, smitten, bruised, broken. And then he asks, you know, he looks down and he says, this guy... Uh, running along side of him, and Philip's like, hey, what are, you, what are you doing? He's like, I'm reading a scroll. It's about this guy that's smitten and broken and rejected, and 
there's a lot of, you know, relation going on between me and, you know, seeing myself in this passage here. Like, what's going on here? Who is this guy? And Philip's like, well, can I jump up, up on top of your, you know, carriage with you and come alongside and share with you? He's like, yeah. So he jumps up and he begins to share with him. He's like, 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 the fact of the matter is this is not about the prophet. This is about who the prophet is talking about. This is Jesus. He was alienated so that you who have been cast off can be given a place. He was shown no justice so that you who are, 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 are constantly wondering where is justice can be given a place so that you can stand before the judge of the universe and have a verdict rendered over you, not guilty, because this servant, this Jesus, stood before the king and bore our guilt. And, and here's... Here's where the story just concludes. Uh, we're just simply told that this Ethiopian eunuch bought it, believed it, and he sees a body of water. He's like, there's water right there. I, I want to get baptized. I want in. I want fully to be in, immersed into this life that this Messiah Jesus has, has purchased for me. Radical obedience. For Philip? Radical obedience looked like obeying step one, even though it made no sense, and then beginning step two, and then obeying step two, which then led to this unfolding drama of having some sort of direct contact with this insanely rich, wealthy, well-known official, and then this official being told the Jesus story and then saying, for him, his obedience looked like getting off his track and saying, I want in and getting baptized. So what about you? What does obedience look like for you? I mean, the fact is, my guess, most of us here are, are followers of Jesus. We would call ourselves followers of Jesus, but we, we wrestle with, with God. We resist God. We, rather than saying yes to God, we, we, we constantly, regularly, frequently say no to, to God. Um, we argue with God. We expect God to give us answers. Well, why should I do this? God, give me five points why this, this makes sense. And sometimes God just, we, it's responded back with silence. There's, there's like no voice from heaven. We're like, God, well, what about plan B? Or what about, you know, step four? And God's like, step, step one, obey me. But this, this leads to my clothes to think about, like, like how, how do we obey? How do we really obey without falling into um, legalism on the last slide? Because the fact is, when we think about obedience, sometimes it can be like this legalist, like, I'm just going to obey because it's the right thing to do. I'm like uber Christian, and I just do the hard stuff because that's what I do. And the fact is, is, is that can easily slip into this, this legalistic mentality. But, but how do we undo this legalistic bent or veering of obedience back to the type of obedience that, that is actually life-giving. And I think Jesus says it clearly. He says in John chapter 14, he says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So Jesus rewires it and says, look, as you learn to love me, obedience will naturally flow. You will do what I say because you love me. This is radically different than obedience based upon manipulation, obedience based upon oppression, obedience based upon addiction, obedience based upon any other form or fear this is obedience based upon love. So, how do we love God? John would later say in his little letter, he says, we love God because we see and we know that he first loved us. So let me finish with this. 
Obedience is connected to love. Love is based upon trust. Trust is based upon the trustworthiness of the person who says, trust me, right? You guys follow that, that little, that little uh, equation there? You guys get that? So how do we know that God's trustworthy? How do we know that God actually loves us? And Paul the Apostle actually would answer that question. He would say, look, by this, God demonstrated his love that even while we were yet in direct rebellion, saying no to God, giving God our middle finger, God died for us through Jesus, sent his son, buried, crushed, bore our sin, bore our shame, bore our brokenness, so that we who deserve that can go free. And to the degree that you believe that, that actually sets you free. It sets you free from feeling like you have to be a slave to the affirmation of anybody else or free from being a slave to fear or free from being a slave to your emotions or your wayward desires that fluctuate. Sometimes they're up, sometimes they're down. It frees you. You're free. You're a free person. And now within that freedom, you use that energy and the strength and the power that you have to obey this God that keeps bringing you back into life. But you're like, well, what if God makes no sense? You obey. Because there's a lot of times God doesn't make sense. But that's not because he's confusing. It's because we lack info. So we're going to respond. And I want to finish by just simply saying next week, and uh, this is kind of my announcement, that we will be having our baptism. And uh, we mentioned this for the past several weeks. So next week we'll actually not be here. So if you show up at church, uh, there will be nobody here. We will all be at the beach celebrating Jesus' good works because there will be people that will be going forth into the water being baptized. It's, it's just like the Ethiopian eunuch. It's their way of saying, I'm totally in. There's nothing about me that is partial. I'm totally 100%. This is the thing about baptism. This is one reason why we, we really kind of firmly believe that baptism should be not about like sprinkling. The, the, I, I get that. Maybe if there's no body of water, you can do that. But about being in. It's the, the, the idiom, the metaphor is I'm completely in, completely under the water, and completely submerged, and then completely come out. Because that's the Christian life. It's not about just simply being sprinkled with some religious overtures and desires, but it's about being completely transformed by this God that does good for people who trust him. So check out this video, and then uh, I'm going to have the worship team come on up, and then we'll respond by singing, partaking of communion, praying. If you're here this morning and there's anything that's going on in your life, you just need prayer, any addictions, any emotions, any things that are, that are crushing you, destroying you. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, and maybe... Uh, you want to become a Christian. You want to follow Jesus. And uh, whether you would like to get baptized, or maybe you are a Christian. You've been a Christian for a long time. You've never been baptized. You're like, I've never been baptized because here's my good reasons. I don't want to get wet. Like, like whatever reasons we give, like it's embarrassing. And, but the fact is, is I, I just be really honest with you. Like this is a time to just simply say, this is not about me. This is about the one who gave himself for me. And if the one who gave himself for me gave himself in his entirety to me, then how could I give any less to him? I'm all in. If you want to be baptized, um, you can talk with someone. But check out this video, and then we'll sing a few songs, and then we'll finish. Sound good? Let it roll. Here we are at Avila. Uh, we're celebrating today baptism. It's uh, probably one of the best times that we have out of the year to just remember what 
it's like to have brand new life in Jesus. Jesus not only gives new life, Jesus washes and cleanses us, Jesus brings people into a brand new family, and, and that's, that's what baptism is all about. And that's what makes this whole event so powerful and transforming, because every human being has a sense of being broken, and filthy, and dirty. Every human being has a sense of feeling alienated or lost, and every human being has a sense of dealing with death. And yet Jesus undoes all that, and that's the story of the gospel in short. And we get to celebrate that in every person that gets baptized. into a family that you have given them life in exchange for death and so God we pray right now that as they go in the water as they come back out that it would just be the recognition of a brand new life that they have to live out of them